Welcome to The Indigenous Approach, a podcast where we examine the role of the nation's premier partnership force across the competition continuum, from cooperation to conflict and everything in between. In this episode, Major General John Brennan, Brigadier General Scott Jackson, and Colonel Mike Sullivan discuss the unique but complementary roles of First Special Forces Command and the Security Force Assistance Command. All right. Uh, hello, I'm Colonel Mike Sullivan. I'm the current commander of 2nd SFAB. Um, I have 20 years of Special Forces experience, primarily in 3rd Special Forces Group, but most recently, prior to taking command six months ago of 2nd SFAB, I served right here in 1st Special Forces Command as the G3 and the Chief of Staff. And it's my honor today to be the uh, moderator of this Indigenous Approach podcast to discuss the role of 1st Special Forces Command and the Security Force Assistance Command with the two commanding generals and how they see themselves and their uh, organizations working both in great power competition and the continuum of conflict. So gentlemen, welcome today. Again, I'm, I'm joined by General Brennan, John Brennan, the uh, commander of 1st Special Forces Command Airborne, and Brigadier General Scott Jackson, the second commander ever of the Security Force Assistance Command. Um, gentlemen, welcome, and I look forward to the discussion. I would like to kick things off with just kind of a question that covers your own uh, view of your purpose and vision of how your organization fits into great power competition and kind of the continuum of conflict from partnership to competition to how you see your role for the uh, U.S. military strategic perspective in conflict itself. So I'll, I'll start with you, General Brennan, and how you see FIRST SFC. Thanks for that broad question, Mike. Yes, Appreciate that. Obviously, we have multiple different tribes. We've got the Civil Affairs, PSYOPs, and Special Forces that operate as cross-functional teams across the globe, really as global sensor network that feeds back into the SOGIDFC, which is our crisis response headquarters that deploys forward for purpose in support of OPLAN activation across the globe. So we tie the forward element back to here, here to Fort Bragg, and then we've reorganized the PSYOP regiment into the 4th POG, which is regionally aligned, and then the 8th POG, which is our global information warfare capability. Uh, we've got the Information Warfare Center back here that feeds the Information Warfare Task Forces forward. Similarly, we're exploring options with our SF groups to do command and control to a certain extent from back at their home stations in support of the TSOCs forward to bring those cross-functional teams to impose costs on our GPC threats. We're still very much involved in the CT fight in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, but we're seeing more and more confluence of the, the Russia-China GPC nexus that is obviously a threat to our forces, and then we're doing our best to counter those threats um, globally, and we're seeing the competition space expand, obviously, into Africa, South America, and then we have you know, our resident SF groups that, that counter those threats as well. But we also see ourselves as the convergence headquarters of multi-domain operations. We're very heavily involved in cyberspace as well as obviously the, the air, sea, land domains, and then really the influence and the cerebral cognitive domain with our PSYOP forces. Yes, sir. Sir, same question. Yeah, so thanks, Mike. And again, thanks for the opportunity to do this, and sir, thanks for hosting. I think it's a great, you know, and we'll say this probably a lot today, a great example of the complementary nature between our two organizations. So with respect to the question, you know, how does SFAC and the, and the supporting SFABs fit within the continuum of conflict and operations, right? So stepping back a little bit, you know, back to 2017 when they first built first SFAB and, and kind of in response to where we were in Afghanistan and, and uh, in an effort to honestly close it out, 
right? Return to our lower tactical advising, try to push this thing across the goal line and close that out. A lot of people thought, and, and it was true at the time, that, hey, the SVABs were being built for Afghanistan. Uh, we got in there, we did what we had to do there, but then some larger decisions were made and an assessment of the environment said, hey, look, maybe it's, we need to look beyond Afghanistan. And so the recent decision to realign us to regional alignment with the, the SVAB force structure, the, active, the five active component brigades and the National Guard Brigade being employed globally across all five geographic combatant commands outside the United States. Uh, and what that did, though, in the good side, what that did was it opened up our aperture on our involvement. So no longer were we just kind of on a very thin slice of that spectrum of conflict. And if you ask us now what we, what we train towards and what we're actively being employed against right now is really being employed against the entire spectrum of conflict. So competition side of the house, day-to-day -day business, but prepared to swing all the way to the conflict side of the house. Uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a member of the contact layer, you know, to use the global operating model, you know, always for persistently employed forward in contact with the environment on the conventional side, which is a theme I'll come back to you multiple times today is that, you know, in contact with the conventional force of our partners, assuring access, building partnerships and relationships, and in, you know, and where possible with the goal of building influence as well. So, you know, that's that's the day-to-day -day business. But should things start going bad, you already have a force on the conventional side that's in contact with the environment, able to assist in crisis to either de-escalate it and get it back to competition, or if the situation continues to spiral forward into conflict, Again, you already have a forward position conventional force that's able to facilitate the onward movement of the rest of the United States, bringing our partner forces online with us as well as we shift into crisis. So actively involved across the entire spectrum, live in competition, prepared to fight in conflict as required. Okay. Uh, in terms of the explanation of both and my understanding having worked for you, sir, <laughs> and now working for you um, in both headquarters and organizations. My condolences. Um, <laughs> Really kind of the question and, and uh, the, the point I'd like you both to discuss in terms of, it really talks to the complementary nature of the two organizations and how they can work together, both in the advisory role and how you see yourselves, again, across that from competition to conflict. But even pulling from both of your vision statements, it's very interesting that you both see yourselves as first kind of into the theater, whether that's in partnership sure. and competition, but even as we transition to conflict, that role that you have. I think both literally and figuratively, mm -hmm. we find both forces kind of on the ground ahead of, you know, the rest of the DOD, U.S. military mm -hmm. operational, you know, strategy. Right. You know, I think uh, in terms of recent, like, discussions about shortening kill chains, I think both organizations serve to produce a partnered force mm -hmm. that allows time, space, deterrence, influence okay. for us to get there. But I, I'm curious in terms of how you guys see the complementary nature of your vision statements of being first, because some might think that they compete with each other in and amongst yeah. themselves as opposed to complementary. So, sure. sir, do you, how, how do you see the two forces complementing each other? I mean, they're absolutely symbiotic. Scott and I deployed on the first SFAB deployment. I was in the 101st Airborne, but we, I saw firsthand the power of the integration of the Special Operations Forces with their partners, with the conventional forces, with the SFAB battalion that was working for me. And so to have, you know, place those forces on the battlefield together uh, was really powerful. And we did a lot of great work over there. Um, so we're really showing what our partners, what right looks like with soft CF integration. Uh, I think it's hugely important. But in the conflict spectrum, we're going to be, we're in 70 countries right now. So we are 
doing things, you know, sensitive activities on that spectrum from sensitive activities all the way up to partner development on the soft side. And the SFACs and the SFABs are doing the exact same thing on the conventional side. So hugely complementary, really a symbiotic relationship. Uh, we, we are going to find ourselves on, in the same dirt all over the world, and we have to build and tighten that relationship to make it more effective for when the joint force, because right now we're building space and time for the joint force to modernize by keeping the pressure on the NDS threats in theater with our partners. And then, of course, as Scott mentioned, kind of you're the RSOI force too when the conventional joint force comes in, uh, really giving them situational awareness and then providing exquisite capabilities in the sense of activities realm as well as the information domain. Thank you, sir. There's definitely no... There's no conflict between the two organizations with respect yeah. to mission space. I mean, the, sure, yeah, both, both General Brennan and I view our formations as being first in competition, and you can parse that out, you know, in subsequent discussion. But, you know, the world's a big place, and, and even the smallest country in the world is still a big place. And so we look forward to sharing the same piece of dirt, you know, when required by mission, but there's no shortage of work. And I think the key thing is we have levied a huge load on the special operations community for operations outside of war. Mm-hmm trying to take on the whole doggone pie. And so I think now with the introduction of both forces, you can you can focus on what each force does well. And so you know, this, the development of soft capacities in our partner forces and the development of conventional force capacities in our partner forces have to run in parallel in order to be effective. And we see it in our own doctrine, right? So look at through our experiences over the last 30 years, I mean, how many times growing up have we, have we been lectured on soft conventional force interoperability? and how we, we messed it up in the 80s and 90s, and we got to get better, and we, and we got better in the 2000s, right? Uh, and we're, and, and our, our wartime experiences has brought us along to that point. We need to get our partners to the same point. So why have one force trying to do both sides of the equation when you now have the capacity to do both very well? And additionally, you take the third layer, I think, which is the generating force in our partner forces, where we haven't really talked about too much. And now you have the capacity to build a strong generating force or enterprise-level capacity within our partner nations where they can sustain those tactical capacities uh, that we've worked on so well. Some examples recently of, there are, you know, in North Africa, we've invested a lot of energy in developing CT-type capacities, and we've done very well at the tactical edge. We've produced a very, very sharp point of the spear, very sharp teams, sharp companies, but what we haven't done is really work on the logistics side of the house. We haven't worked on the training base side of the house. And so whether it be generating force or sustaining, that hasn't been there in the past, now we can start approaching that. And so we've built logistics capacities to support our counterterrorism forces and some of our African partners. And I think that is long-term sustainability. That's winning in competition as you produce a credible deterrent uh, force you know, around the world. Yeah. So would you like to develop that out? Because I think just from my own personal experience, previous to working here at First Special Forces Command, I was the SOC Forward Lebanon Commander. In that role, you know, I inherited 10 years of persistent security force assistance, but primarily at that CT force, high-end, soft to soft 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 engagement, where I was working with Marine Commandos, their Ranger Regiment, their Air Assault Regiment. And what I found was, is that by the time I had got there 10 years in, they were highly effective, mm-hmm. understood the training model. What my advisors could provide at the soft level was minuscule to the points where I saw the gaps at those institutional levels of what makes an army run. Mm-hmm. So the logistics brigade, mm-hmm. the support in terms of maneuver from their armor brigade. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that we were delivering through SFA Bradley's from you know the Desert Storm era and 
You know, they were asking me, don't you have somebody on an SF team that knows how to drive a Bradley? And I was like, I absolutely do not have that. I'm not built with that capability. So it kind of gets into maybe some of the differences in the structural build of the, the SFAB versus the Special Forces Group or the RSOF regiments writ large. But how do you see that in terms of the complementary nature, in terms of that institutional build and making the armies that we work with better? Yeah. So, you know, one example we could point to is, you know, in Somalia, it's, it's, no, it's no secret. Obviously, we've been working to develop, you know, a more capable, you know, internal security force there named the Danab. And uh, our special operations component has done a great job producing tactical formations. Mm -hmm. uh, but what has been lacking is, you know, the generating force out of the house, the, the basic training side of the house, right? So where do you develop these, these, how do you identify and develop these young Somalis to move into the Danab? Mm -hmm. uh, and we've had to, you know, the solution was you rely on contractors and stuff like that. Well, you know, so with the introduction of the SFAB now, you, you've now produced, you know, a, a U.S. combined force that's working at the tactical edge and the generating force to build this, this basic training type capacity, identifying the top tier Somalis that would do well in the Danab force, doing some transition training. So when we hand them off to the MARSOC elements that were doing the mission at the time, they're ready to run. Right, and so you're seeing a more capable tactical force. Additionally, <clears throat> while you're building these strong CT-type companies, we were building, you know, there was nobody working on the battalion and brigade-level formations. It was kind of outside the sphere of what the MARSOC elements were doing, but now the SFAB formations can, can come in and look at the mission command and the sustainment side of the house mm -hmm. so that we, this great resource we build can now be there next week and next year, and we don't have to keep starting over all the time. It's just one example. I mean, we could pick up, you know, areas in, in the Pacific. We can talk about things going on in South America, all where that complementary nature of, you know, sharp tactical point with a strong base or a strong shaft mm -hmm. to, to drive that spear home. Yes, sir. So to that point, mm -hmm. and, in term, and to your point earlier in terms of the symbiotic nature and that complementary nature that we're trying to build, how do you see we that developing out prior to kind of meeting on the objective in mm -hmm. country X and, you know, region Y yeah. globally. The good news is I think it's already happening. That's the right. SFABs are, they're doing a lot of training with the SF groups writ large. And then really, I'd like to mature the way our deployment cycles are so that we are actually aligned. That would be hugely helpful. Right now we're not on the same spin cycle, so we're missing opportunities with PMT and CTC rotations. Uh, we participate in every CTC rotation, <clears throat> but we also have the, the soft training center at White Sands and Fort Bliss where we can tie that venue training in where we're training 05 and 06 level headquarters in with the CTC rotations. And we'd like to do the same thing with the, bring the SFABs in as well. And then I think the, the more we can work before we deploy, the better. And getting on the same rotation cycle will be hugely helpful in, in achieving that. Sure. Sure, I would add on that one. I think the when deployed, you know, with the with the introduction of, of SFAB formations in each GCC, now we've given them a resource. The the ASCCs mm -hmm. and the TSOCs can now start to to integrate as well. So can you look at the exercise programs yeah. that go along with each GCC? Mm -hmm. So instead of having you know largely conventional force or theater based exercises and then soft focus exercises, you can start mm -hmm. integrating. So we can kind of yeah. practice what we preach about soft conventional force integration in our own army. We can do it there. So you'll have, you know, take like a flintlock type exercise yeah. and, and we start integrating uh, African conventional forces into flintlock, mm -hmm. a largely soft oriented operation with supporting conventional forces. And we start 
driving home those best practices of mm -hmm. soft conventional force integration. And the glue that brings it together are the, the, you know, the, the soft elements, whether it be sure. ODAs or the MARSOC or what have you, you know, working side by side with the, the SFAB and maneuver advising teams that are with their conventional force. So we're the mm -hmm. glue, just as we would in crisis, we're the glue that allows yeah. translation, not literal translation, but yeah. you know, uh, understanding, mutual understanding between the different formations. And you, you bring up a great point. So unlike our army, <laughs> A lot of our partner armies, they, the, the logistic system is the same for the soft element and the conventional. Okay. And what the SFABs bring is that those logistics advisory teams that are mm -hmm. just phenomenal. We saw how it helped in Afghanistan, at least I saw it firsthand, um, because they're dipping into the same supply chains to support both host nation soft and conventional. And there's a lot of graft <laughs> in some, some armies. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to they want to keep the best for themselves and give the rest out. So I think there's a definite, that, that's one area where we can definitely achieve some, some synergy. Also with, you know, large-scale fires training, artillery, you know, I have a lot of artillerymen in my formation. They know how to call for fire, but they're not the experts in all things fires-related, et cetera. So that's another huge, important facet of the SFAB that we look forward to capitalizing on. Yeah, I mean, sure. think about that in a future exercise where you could get partner force, soft elements mm -hmm. supported by conventional force artillery or conventional force mm -hmm. other resources. And that, again, it's all brought together by the glue between our two organizations. We did that in Afghanistan, too. We had <laughs> ANA D-30s firing in support of conventional and soft maneuver in the same battle space. Sure. Pretty powerful. To take it maybe a step further, sir, and I'll, I'll start with you. The um, While there there is all this similarity between the two forces. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a, you know, an advisory assist, you know, support and liaison mission that goes across, you know, the two professional organizations mm -hmm. that is near the exact same mission, mm -hmm. at, you know, at its base level. It's not lost on me, and I may have even had a, a senior AFRICOM GCC general officer mention to me, hey, Mike, remember the SF and SFAB is not special forces. Mm -hmm. So there are some differences unique to each organization, purpose-built for uh, separate mission sets. Mm -hmm. I just want to give you each an opportunity to mm -hmm. talk about maybe some of those differences as you see them and maybe some of the misconceptions in terms of the similarities that some people may think the two organizations have. Yeah. I appreciate uh, that one because that is, that is really a first-order question, right? So the number one thing is, you know, this is a conventional formation. You know, back in 17 when General Milley started to stand us up, and one of the, the first question we had to ask and answer was, where are you planting the flag? Because mm -hmm. given his vision of where we wanted to go, you, you chose poorly, mm -hmm. and you said, no, we're going to be special, mm -hmm. you know, we're different. Then that would drive the culture, that would drive the training, that would drive the, you know, the focus of the organization in the wrong direction. And so we made a conscious decision right early on from day one to plant the flag on the conventional side of that line. It's tied to our recruiting base, it's tied to our core competencies, and it's tied to our partner force. So that's, that's first and foremost, the number one difference. This is a conventional formation. Never want to, have no desire to, never intend to address any of the missions that special operations component does. That's what they do so well, and that's what they will continue to do so well. Our vision, you know, our charter says, hey, we're the, we're the experts in conventional you know, combined arms warfare. And I think that's our dance space. And so that all falls back into, you know, where we recruit from and how do we train and what do we propose to our partner forces. It's about blocking and tackling. It's about fire and maneuver. It's about application of surface and aerial fires in support of ground maneuver. That's what we do, right? We don't do unconventional warfare. We don't do direct action. We don't do strategic reconnaissance. None of that stuff. I will never let our guys talk about that stuff. 
And so that, that's the, the foremost difference between our formations. Both formations are filled full of experts. Both formations are partner-focused. Both formations uh, represent, I think, the best of their, you know, their clans, if you will. Mm-hmm. But we have two parallel but never intersecting you know, mission sets. Yes, sir. And I think you know, our roots go back to unconventional warfare. Uh, whether you're a PSYOP or a civil affairs or an SF, Green Beret, that's your root. So OSS, Jedburg teams, and that, that has not changed. We're still purpose-built for unconventional warfare, which is a component of a regular warfare. Uh, that is the new term of art, plus we do SRDA. Coin and FID, I think, is that's the crossover sweet space where we overlap with the SFABs and advising partners. But we also layer in sensitive activities on the higher end, things to another set of tools that is much more advanced. But we also bring in multi-domain capabilities. We work closely with the interagency. We work closely with Cyber Command. We work closely with, we're working closer now with Space Command and their various uh, downtrace units to make multi-domain capabilities appear on the battlefield and create effects in multi-domain simultaneously. So that's kind of where we're headed in the future and where, what we were purpose-built to do and uh, how we're getting there. Yes, sir. On a slightly different topic, but, but similar, sir, and not to say that we do any sort of strategic reconnaissance mm-hmm. specifically for the, the SFABs mm-hmm. and what, what our advisors are doing, I would argue that there is an opportunity, though, based mm-hmm. on the fact that we're first into the theater working with the conventional forces, that we do have a complementary yeah. effect when it comes to the influence operations mm-hmm. and serving as, whether you t- use the term global scouts or global sensors, yep. tying back to the efforts that SF Command's doing sure. now with the larger information warfare look in terms of our strategy, mm-hmm. specifically when we talk about GPC. Because mm-hmm. I would argue that if, if you put one of my forces into theater, we're losing half the battle if we're not getting the messaging right mm-hmm. in terms of why we're there and what we're doing to help out our, our partners um, globally. Sure. I'll start with you, sir. How, how do you see in terms of that complementary nature of the you know, strictly conventional advisory role, mm-hmm. but how we could be used to help complement your efforts in the psychological operations regiment? Absolutely. I mean, every soldier's a sensor. Don't care what your job is. Every soldier sees things, hears things, reads things that are important. It's just a matter of tying those soldiers into the greater information warfare network. And I think we're, we're working on ways to do that more efficiently through AI, ML, um, apps, electronic means to feed an information lake that we're building so that we can draw that data in, quickly analyze it, and then get messages out that matter. And so we want to highlight the effects you're having as a global partner with various armies out there to compete with China and Russia. So I think there's great... Uh, symbiotic capability there. We can take all the things you're doing and, and push, push it out in the IE for effect. Additionally, same thing with intelligence. So I know you don't have Cat 1 collectors, but we do. So we can <laughs> take the information that your folks are seeing and serialize it and put it in reporting. Yeah, yeah there's no doubt. I mean, there's every person on the battlefield, you know, the, the teams will receive and they will transmit. Right, so they will receive information from their partners, and they will transmit messages yeah. appropriately. But key to that is the, as I said, the, the folks that you pull into this formation that, with the maturity and the understanding, to be able to, to transmit the right messages, as well as to, you know, filter out and receive the right information. You know, I think, I think our experiences will show that you know it's it's easy to get inundated by the, by the stuff that's in the environment when you're out there all the time. Yeah. How do you sort that out to distill it down to? 
you know, the, the, the ambassador level CCIR or the GCC level CCIR that mm. may not be written down. It's just based on good judgment that says that nugget's important and then being able to push it up. So, yeah, no doubt. I, I totally concur with the comment that, yeah, it is about messaging. It is about influence. It's about access and messaging and, and, and receiving as well. Sure. Um, slightly different topic, but something I know both mm -hmm. organizations are dealing with and grappling with um, in terms of their understanding of organizational culture. Mm -hmm. So previous Indigenous Approach podcasts, a lot of the work mm -hmm. that came in with Ed Crude as the Chief of sure. Staff in terms of the Special Forces identity crisis. Mm -hmm. Sir, you mentioned the reorganizations of the Psychological Regiment, right. Psychological Operations Regiment, mm -hmm. and then for those that know the Civil Affairs Brigade's history just a few years ago, they too looked at how they yeah. looked inward of themselves and how they fit into the larger picture of RSOF and their role, not only in the current CT fight, but GPC. So you're dealing with the mm -hmm. maturation of what your organizational culture looks like after decades of mm -hmm. how people think they see themselves. So on the, on the flip side of that, you have a brand new organization where you're not lost on anybody in the command that you were charged with planting the flag as the first SFAB commander before you fleeted up to SFAC. Mm -hmm. You mentioned opening the aperture in terms of the mission set mm -hmm. um, with regional alignment and our, our global look as uh, conventional advisors. I'd just like to give you both an opportunity to talk about how you see the development of organizational culture in these types of unique organizations. So, sir, I'll Sure. I mean, we, we have a long history. The last 20 years have been primarily focused on CT, as you've stated, and a lot of people came into the um, various regiments to get their gun on and go after terrorists. Um, that's understandable. Uh, but looking to the future, we're, we're definitely much more interested in bringing our formations together as a cross-functional team uh, to impose effects on our, our enemies um, and prevent wars from happening. So we've been in the gunfight. We, we are also in the business of preventing gunfights. We don't want to get into a large-scale combat operation if it's avoidable. Um, but if it does happen, we want to be there embedded where we need to be so that we can support the joint force and then explore unconventional warfare opportunities and impose, continue to impose costs on our enemies and prevent the need to send Americans over conventional forces over to, to fight a fight that maybe our partners should be fighting for them. So that's kind of the... The, the way we're looking at the future, and then layering in, we, we want smarter operators who understand cyber. They understand, they're, they're digital natives. They're not like Scott and I were, <laughs> you know, iPhones, not, not my uh, preferred weapon of choice, but they know how to weaponize information better than anybody. And so we're, we're trying to get that rubric and then really the multi-domain aspect. Uh, folks that understand how to employ space-based capabilities how to employ sensitive activities at the right place and time. And so we're looking for a more mature RSOFT soldier that can do more than just CT. And that's kind of the message we're, you know, we're the, the partner of choice for a reason. We, we have people that can work with others who may not come from a, the same cultural background or have the same understanding, but still be able to employ them on the battlefield and advise them correctly. So uh, that's been our mantra. Really, we're going back in time almost because before... 9-11, that's kind of what we did. And it would have been great to have had an SFAB alongside of us because we did a lot of things that really weren't so much soft. And we did Africa Crisis Response Initiative. I mean, that, that's a perfect SFAB mission. 
Uh, even during the Gulf War, I mean, we were advising conventional armor brigades. We had 5th Group guys in tanks, crew in tanks, alongside of Kuwaitis, Syrians, um, so much more of an SFAB mission. But at the end of the day, we had a lot more breadth across uh, what we were being asked to do all over the world, and I think we're, we're definitely moving back to that. We're back to regional alignment with our Civil Affairs Brigade. The battalions are pretty much there. Psychological operations, we're getting pretty close with 4th POG. 8th POG is standing up the Information Warfare Center here, plus we're better supporting JSOC. So I think we're, we're getting back to that regional alignment. SF groups are the next, as we pull out of Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria a little bit more, we'll be able to get back to true regional alignment to, to really delve in deep uh, to the GPC threats. Yeah, so unlike you know, General Brendan's situation where he's, he's got a long history to fall back on, we have three and a half years of history that's being built. Uh, so we're figuring this out. And it just says where we planned the flag at. Can then That was the first order question. Second order question was the culture that came along with it. And uh, that has been an evolutionary process as well. And we could talk for hours about that history lesson. But the bottom line is, you know, that it was driven by the mission and the requirements of the mission. And so even regardless of whether or not it was Afghanistan or regional alignment, the direction provided by General Milley from the get-go provided a few you know, hard pieces of data that we could shape off of. And so, you know, the, I still, I stand by what I said earlier, conventional force founded in combined arms maneuver, break. Uh, as you know, the first thing I usually tell folks is that, but we're not a brigade combat team. You know, if you, that's the first thing you have to understand that you are not coming to a brigade combat team. And, and you know, and, and, and as Mike has heard me say, you know, the first sentence on my initial counseling for all senior leaders is, hey, congratulations on selection for command or, or you know, position of responsibility as a sergeant major. You obviously did great, but don't do what you did there. Don't do it here, or otherwise I will fire you. Because the techniques, requirements of a BCT level leader are different than what you have here because of the mission, because of the subordinates that you have, and the scope of responsibilities. And so that drives us to a culture that is by necessity from the mission perspective of you know, focusing on decentralization, empowerment, true mission command. Because as you all know, I mean, when you work by yourself with a small team way beyond the flagpole, it's about commander's intent and situational understanding. You have to operate in a mission command environment, probably more so than any other brigade combat team in the Army. And that drives us to a different kind of culture. It takes us away from a hierarchical structure. It takes us into a flattened structure. And to the point where, you know, the word headquarters is verboten, you know, in the formation. We don't have headquarters. We have teams. And just we have higher echelon teams. But, and they have some level of mission command or command and control responsibilities. But if you lock yourself into a box that says, well, you know, the team reports to the company, the company reports to the battalion, the battalion reports to the brigade, then one, you're too slow. And two, two stovepipes so you won't be able to cover the necessary ground on when the missions comes down. So, you know, the, those are the critical points of our culture that we try to emphasize is maturity, decentralized decision-making, mission command, and just, you know, understanding that you're not in a brigade anymore, brigade combat team anymore. Yeah. Gentlemen, to that point then, um, I guess in terms of recruiting, who, who then are you looking for? I mean, you know, for you, sir, it's the team of teams approach and understanding of that responsibility, that ability to act alone and unafraid, definitely the exact same thing, whether you're talking mm -hmm. a, a civil affairs team, a SOPS team, or an operational mm -hmm. detachment alpha, um, that we're asking relatively junior leaders in the mm -hmm. Army to take on incredible responsibility and to do it from a bottom up where yeah. we expect them to be telling us as the senior leaders what they need, how are they gonna get this done, and then mm -hmm. you know sharing that risk together. Um, but for both of you, uh, who are you looking for, I guess, for each one of your organizations? Mm -hmm. Sir, to you first. Well, obviously, physically, mentally tough. We, we've proved that through our selection process. 
uh, people that are capable of independent thought, uh, because you know, as Scott pointed out, modern battlefield, you might not talk to your subordinate elements for weeks. You gotta be comfortable with that. So you gotta have people that you can trust to make the right decisions when nobody's looking. And then I'm looking for innovators <laughs> who can solve problems quickly, uh, come up with viable solutions, and then put them into, into action. Well, we're obviously hugely, we place a, huge, place a huge amount of emphasis on cultural alignment and, and regional alignment. So folks need to be experts in the area of operation where they're gonna work. They gotta be comfortable working with people they've never met before, people that are completely different than them, and then using them to gain effects on the battlefield. So uh, in a nutshell, that's kind of the person we're looking for. I would say I'm looking for the exact same kind of guy or gal that uh, General Brennan's looking for. But the difference is that I'm looking for the, the officer or, in, or enlisted leader that wants to stay within their conventional basic branch, right? So that expert in combined arms warfare. And, and I think what separates that soldier from everybody else in the conventional force is the, you know, it's the personality, it's the characteristics of their, of their, of their, of their being, right? So, you know, the simple phrase I used early on was, you know, every, you know, every advisor is a great soldier, but not every soldier is a great advisor, right? Because there's... You know, there's the guys who can only talk with a knife hand, and there's some guys who can, can talk with a hand on the shoulder kind of thing. And as all of our experience will show, you know, this does not work with partner forces. No. Uh, there's a time and a place for this, and this is usually not the time or our place. Yeah. And so that, that ability, you know, those characteristics of, of being patient and flexible and mature, empathetic, you know, the word we don't, is trending, you know, you're hearing that more and more now, but I think we've all known that, you know, empathy is important, particularly in this line of work. So. Finding the, the expert in combined arms warfare that's happy with what they're doing. They like, you know, driving things and breaking things and, you know, bringing steel. But yet, they're the right personality to fit the requirements of the mission. Yep. I think you have to have someone who excels in ambiguity mm-hmm. as well. Comfortable with ambiguity because our, our line of work, there's a lot of ambiguity out there. There's a lot of uncertainty, uh, especially if you're operating in some unstable countries uh, with some partners who could change their mind on a given day. Uh, you got to be able to sense, sense your partner's feelings and sense their, where, the, where we think they're going. So being intuitive and comfortable in ambiguity is important. Yeah. I mean, how many times in, the, in 18 when we were in Afghanistan it was like, you know, you're troop leading at the core level to yeah. try to coach your partner into doing yeah. what makes the military sense as opposed to if we were dealing with a you know, a more traditional partner or even our own formation, it would be like, makes obvious sense. Yeah. It'd be the easiest thing to do in the world, but instead, you ran to do with your partner up north, and yeah. I was in the same thing down in, in southeast of, yeah. you know, not necessarily using logic, using cultural, you know, levers to try to get your partner to do what he wanted to do. And it may take you four or five days to get yeah. there, and then he still changes his mind an hour before LD. Yeah. So, just roll with it. you got to be persistent <laughs> in your engagements. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, to that point, and I'll, I'll kind of bring it back kind of to wrap things up in terms of how we're, we see this, and again, back to the mission set in terms of competition and conflict. Both forces work into, you know, in, in my words, making our partnered forces better. Mm-hmm. You know, we're kind of like the 3M of militaries. Yeah. We don't, you know, we may build the armies, but once we do, we even make them better um, by that persistent engagement, the advisory role both on the conventional and the soft side. Mm-hmm. To the point of competition, and then setting ourselves up for success with conflict. I'd like to bring it back just to kind of wrap it up in terms of how you both see how we impose costs on our mm-hmm. competitors 
in that space who are trying to do the same things, whether it's security force assistance mm -hmm. or gaining that access and placement for influence, or to your, your point, sir, you've talked about to the, to the deterrence mode of mm -hmm. if you build a capable partner that's going to be at that first layer of contact with a, with a competing force, mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it builds in that space and maybe even that deterrence that, the, you know, our competitors won't go there based on our work ahead of conflict mm -hmm. to keep it from happening, to your point, sir. But yeah. just to wrap it up in terms of how you see that bigger imposing of costs on our competitors we, as we move forward. Sure. Uh, I think being the partner of choice does that. So it, all over the world, our partners want training from us. They want American equipment and... They want American advice, and then that edges out China, Russia, <laughs> and any other partner who's trying to infiltrate that space. And then really in the information environment, I think we can dominate. We can do more than we are now, but highlighting where China, Russia fall short with either their equipment, their predatory lending practices, how they're trying to influence internal politics in some of these countries that is illegal and or unhelpful. But throwing those truth bombs out there for wider consumption has an effect. So we've seen, you know, you've seen it on the news. They exposed some of the Russian PMCs and what they're doing in Africa, and it was on 60 Minutes. And then a week later, they packed up shop and left. That's causing monetary costs, obviously, and influence costs, as well as just general perception from the global community. So I think that those are the, that's what that looks like. And then you've got the, obvious maneuver. We're in places that are close to things that are important to Russia and China. It makes them nervous so and causes them to spend more time, effort, money trying to figure out what we're doing <laughs> while our partners are also singing our praises. I think that's hugely important. Yeah, I mean, couldn't say it better. I mean, it, simple presence first has a deterrent effect, right? It changes the decision calculus. So if it's a, if it's a vacuum, it's an easy decision. They just occupy the vacuum. But if it's not a vacuum, then you have to make a you know, a conscious decision of whether or not you're willing to invest. I mean, I'm saying that, you know, that 10 or 12 folks on the ground is going to make you, know, is going to be an absolute mile-high wall for them to overcome, but it's going to make them think. So that's first order. And then second of all, I mean, as, as General Brennan mentioned, it, everything comes down to time, cost, and performance in its simplest yeah. matter, right? And so our value, our, our value proposition is the quality of our soldiers, the quality of our training, and our presence. And so if they want to overcome that, they got to invest. Mm -hmm time, cost, and form. It's either spend more time there, they got to improve their product, you know, and at, a, at, a, at a cost, which, you know, our, most of our partners are willing to absorb, but still it, it, it changes the calculus. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I think, you know, our, our partners are already showing that, you know, they prefer the product, that product. They prefer the product. Mm -hmm. They prefer the training that we provide uh, over the cheaper Kmart brand. <laughs> uh, I think I can say that because I think they've gone out of business now. So, um, <laughs> Sinovax. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's right. So, you know, if you want to buy the, the Snap-on tool or you want to buy the you know, the cheap one that you buy in the street corner, yep. you want the Snap-on, right? Higher that's quality, right. always going to be reliable, and yep. it's always going to be there for you. So. And our forward presence allows us to identify vulnerabilities and exploit them in the sensitive activities realm as well. Yep. Yeah, for sure. All right. Okay. Well, subject to any alibis or anything that we may have missed, any saved rounds. No, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. It's always great to talk to you. Yeah. yeah, really appreciate it. This has been The Indigenous Approach. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. 
follow us on social media, and if you have suggestions for topics or guests, send us a message. Thank you for listening.